Well, this morning we're continuing on in, uh, in the Gospel of John, and I know last week I began my sermon talking about food, and I'm gonna do it again. Uh, Jesus does it, so I'm, I'm going on his cue here. But have you ever wondered why God created food? These are the things I think about in my office during the week. Why did God create food? I mean, food has amazing power, doesn't it? What is one thing you talk about every single day? Food. You talk, you, what is one thing you think about every single day? Food. You want to know what's for dinner or what you have or what sounds good or what's on the menu. Food is the topic every single day of your life. It is basic to our existence as humans. You, you cannot exist on this earth very long without food or drink. You need it. Why did God do that? I mean, why did God create bread and water and design humans so that they needed that to survive? You know, God could have created life without the need to eat. Some of you think, well, I wish he would have. But he did. He created this way. He's, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. So why bread? And, and why does he allow us to be hungry and thirsty? Have you ever thought about that? Even thinking through that hunger and, and thirst. Um, have you ever had a day, a busy day, working hard, you're outside, you're sweating, and, and you could just, you're just really thirsty. You want a, a glass of water. You know, that's, it, it comes naturally. You don't have to think about that. Just, you want it. Or, or, or you are famished. You know, you have a, a day or a week or something, and you really want a good meal. I remember when we came back from Sweden after being there for a year and never, ever finding a good hamburger in Sweden. And what I wanted when I came back was a good hamburger. A good, you know what I mean, a good hamburger. Like, roll me out of the restaurant afterwards hamburger. <laughs> Stomach's growling, I'm low in energy. I wanted to eat, I was hungry. Hungry and thirst, you know, these, these are real, aren't they? Well, Jesus talks about this throughout this chapter in John chapter six. And this morning, I believe Jesus has something to say about hunger and thirst. So if you haven't already, turn your Bibles to John chapter 6 and follow with me as I read. We're going to look at verses 35 through 59 this morning. John chapter 6, verses 35 through 59. Jesus said to them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet, yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, who, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has come and heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. 
He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I, I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 52, then the Jews disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. Whoever so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died, Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. This is the word of God. Join me in prayer. Father, we come this morning before your throne and we thank you for this morning and our worship that the chance we've had to come to, as a body, as the family of God here at Edgewood and to worship you in song, to worship you in, in our, our prayers and the reading of scripture and to worship you by giving back of what you've so generously and abundantly given to us. Father, we worship you and we continue in our worship through the preaching of your word. And God, I ask this morning that you would teach that you would guide and lead, that you would give us understanding of your word. Even as we look at a difficult passage, one that has been a struggle for many theologians for hundreds of years, God, I pray that in this hour, you would give understanding and clarity, that your spirit would be our teacher. God, I pray that you would convict this morning, that you would change and, and bring about repentance in the hearts of the listeners here. Father, we, we do all of this. We come together, not for ourselves, but for your honor and for your glory. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, as we continue in our study of the Gospel of John in the sixth chapter, there's three points that I wanna cover throughout this, this section. First is Jesus is the bread of life. He, he is all that we need in this life. And Jesus makes that emphatic statement in verse 35. The second thing I want you to see is Jesus is the satisfaction in life. That is truly where our satisfaction needs to be in Jesus. When we understand why we need to spread, we learn that we are fully satisfied in Jesus alone. And third, Jesus is the center of our faith. There is no Christianity without Christ and his sacrifice for us on the cross. So let's dive in here and look at what Jesus has for us. Jesus is the bread of life, verses 35 and 40. So God the Father has ordained that Jesus would come down to earth, God in human flesh as a substitute for man's wickedness and man's sin. And he would be our bread for eternity. Even though some, even in this passage, re reject Jesus as Savior, still others would receive him as real life and live eternally secure in him. And Jesus is continuing his teaching for the Jews in the synagogue in Capernaum. And he, 
And he has there in verse 35, the first of the seven I am statements that he makes throughout his gospel. Jesus makes these seven I am statements. And going back to the Old Testament, you understand he's talking, he's saying, I'm God. So his first one here this morning that, will, that launches in the next seven is I am the bread of life. He says later, I am, I am the light of the world. I am the, the door, I'm the gate for the sheep, he says. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. And he says, I am the true vine. And each one of these statements by Jesus is taking a theme from Judaism, which, which happened, happened usually often in the context of a miracle or, or a major festival. And then Jesus applies it to himself. He's using their own teachings and their own thoughts to point to himself as the Savior. And in verse 35, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Folks, the state of the human soul is that of being continually hungry and thirsty. The hunger that is being talked about in this passage here is that of spiritual hunger. It's a hunger that comes from being separated from God. Our souls were made to be satisfied by God. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Our lives are incomplete, not because we're missing something, but because we're missing someone. When, when we live for something, something on earth, we'll always be disappointed. We'll always be unfulfilled. We'll always feel corrupted. Have you ever saw, though, in a movie or in a novel where the author, the main character, and looks and searches and finds a way to live forever. You ever come across that? And usually what the response is, is they're miserable. Why? Because living forever isn't the answer. Having eternal just existence isn't the answer. There's a huge difference be between just living forever and really living if we live forever without real life, we're, we're truly miserable. And so when the Bible talks about having eternal life, it isn't some just existence that continues on. There are two options for eternity. We should know this, right? There's a place of existence, eternal existence, and there's a place of eternal life. And God, through Jesus Christ, offers us eternal life, not just an eternal existence. Eternal life is not, is not a quantity of time, but a quality of existence. So your biggest problem in life is, is not fixed by something, it's by someone. And, and remember, from our teaching as we go through the Gospel of John, eternal life is now. Do you remember that a few weeks back when we were in John chapter 5? If you're a Christian this morning, eternal life has started for you. John in, in chapter 5, verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Do you remember that? And when you believe on Jesus Christ, you have life, real life, eternal life, and you pass from death to life. Eternal life, folks, doesn't start at your funeral. It starts at your conversion. When you are saved, that's when eternal life starts. This is real life, and it's only found in Jesus Christ. So this is Jesus' message throughout John chapter 6, and now he, he turns to the Jews and has a strong contrast of what he's been offering. 
in verse 35 and how they respond. He, he lets us in about their response. In verse 36, he says, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. They have rejected Christ. They continue to just want Jesus as a food supply. Jesus, please continue to be the vending machine. I need my next meal. Please just continue to do that. They, they reject Jesus. They want the next show. They want the next display of power. They see Jesus as just a man, not as Christ. And then he moves into here, verse 37, to some deeper water. So I'm gonna ask you for something this morning. For the next five to seven, 10 minutes, depends how long it takes me to get through it. I want you to, to bite on this, to chew on it. I want you to think of this section of scripture as a piece of hard candy that maybe hurts your teeth when you put it in your mouth, but then as you chew on it, it becomes sweet, okay? Trust me, I tried all sorts of weird candy in Sweden, and they'd always say, just try it. And then you got to the middle, and you're like, wow, it was pretty good. It's this section of scripture, okay? So think about it that way. Jesus continues in verse 37, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. People do not come to Christ because it seems to be a good idea for them. What Jesus is teaching for us this morning is that salvation comes at the initiative of God, not man. And what we read this morning is the, the glorious truth of divine election. Jesus again mentions this later in the passage of verse 39. He says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And then again in verse 44, no one, comes, can, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus used a much stronger form here in verse 44. The idea is, is taught in the scriptures of the divine initiative and salvation, it's one of the great doctrines of this gospel and throughout the faith. But as humans, we struggle initially at this because we want to be in control. And we're coaxed into thinking that we are in control. We, we, we begin to think we have everything under control and we want to be independent. I mean, this is true, folks, right? It starts in an early age. I have a two-year-old that proves it every single day. If you're unsure come to my house because she tells me 25 times a day, I do it my own. I do it myself. We're ingrained in this. We want to be independent. We think we can be in control. And humans think that they can come to Jesus entirely upon their own volition, but John is clear for us this morning. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And get this, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus says, I don't lose anyone. And then verse 39, again, I read it again. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And then verse 40, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks in the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then verse 44 again, no one comes to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And as I read through this, I praise God for his promises that he gives us in this text. These are promises from God. He will keep these promises. Later in John's gospel in chapter 10, he says it again. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We have been provided by God. He, He protects us and he keeps us. And on this day, Mother's Day, when we send flowers to our mom, when we, we call and we have dinner and send cards and have a good day, we remember usually, at least for me, all the time that our moms provided for us, right? I hope you do, you, you better. Your mom has provided for you and you can think through that. They've been there, they've looked out for us, they have protected us. Usually for us guys, they protect us from doing really stupid stuff. We should be thankful for our moms. And we we honor moms today. We're thankful for all that you've done and all that you continue to do. We wouldn't be here without moms. Like literally, you wouldn't be here without your mom. So honor your mom today. And even in that though, even in Mother's Day, May, as you think through of how your mom has provided for you, has protected, has, has done so much for you, may your heart not just stand there and your mind go there, but race again back to God and all that he's done for you, all that God has provided for you. So may today, Mother's Day, lead us into remembrance of all that God has provided for us. And maybe there's some here today that begin to question God's provision for you. You know, we assume because we live in a, in a fallen world that that every blessing that has been provided from God must, must, must have to be paid off with some sort of trial. So I've been given a blessing, a trial's gonna come. Right? Have you ever had that thought for a week? You know, you say, oh, I've had a good week. I wonder what God is getting ready for me. Like somehow it's gonna come now. God does not endorse karma. He does not live in that framework. He does not just give good when we are good. I was once at a Jiffy Lube, you know, my old change, and as I was waiting, there's a sign there, and it was made by Jiffy Lube, and it said on the sign, we hire people with good karma. I said, you should hire people with good character. Karma. Our world buys into this nonsense. God doesn't function on the basis of karma. He does good for us, even when we do bad. He continues on in this passage. You can do nothing to lose your salvation. It's all of God. He, he drew you. He will keep you. Now, I just came across an excellent quote from John MacArthur this week. He says, if I could lose my salvation, I would. I, I can't lose my salvation, but I certainly can lose my sanctification. What truth that is. God keeps us eternally secure. We did nothing to earn salvation and we can do nothing to lose it. But we can definitely do something to lose our sanctification. And I believe one of this, this is one of the reasons why people struggle with this idea of, of losing salvation because they sin and they fear that God will reject them. Listen, folks, what were you before God saved you? Were you a good person? Were you righteous? Were you holy? Doing good? What were you before God saved you? You know, Francis Schaeffer, one of our country's greatest apologists, once asked, was once asked by someone else. He said, the question came to him, what would you do if you met a modern man on a train and had just one hour to talk to him about the gospel? And here's his response. He said, I would spend 45 to 50 minutes on the negative to really show him his dilemma, that he is morally dead, 
Then I'd take the last 10 minutes to preach the gospel. I believe that much of our evangelistic and personal work today is not clear simply because we are too anxious to get to the answer without having a man realize the real cause of his sickness, which is true moral guilt and not just psychological guilt or feelings in the presence of God. So turn your Bibles to Ephesians 2. Paul's gonna make us feel guilty. Ephesians chapter two, I want you to see it in your Bibles or on your electronic devices. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, we have some that we'd love to give to you. So there's, in, there's some in the foyer. If you don't have a Bible, please take it, they're out there. When I preach, it's out of the Bible. So if you don't have one, you're missing the connection here. But Ephesians chapter two, Paul writing to the church and he lays out for them and for us who we were. Chapter two, verse one, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Get this, verse four. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Look, salvation is all of God. Paul is clear with us this morning in Ephesians that we, before coming to Jesus Christ, followed the prince of the power of air, Satan. We were sons of disobedience. We lived in the passions of the flesh. We were children of wrath. And in and of ourselves, we couldn't save ourselves. All on our own, we were eternally damned. On our own, we would never be saved. We were dead, like a corpse that smells. And it would bring a miracle to bring life. Just the same miracle that you're gonna see as we get to John chapter 11, when Jesus approaches the tomb of Lazarus, his friend who's been dead for three days, and the stench of death that wafts out of that tomb, and Jesus comes and he raises him back to life. It's a miracle what he does for Lazarus, and it's a miracle of what he does for us in salvation. We don't deserve it, we can't earn it, we can't start it, we can't motivate it, we can't accomplish it. Salvation is all of God. And for me this morning, in the context of this, and what John's saying, this is incredibly encouraging. Because left to myself, left to my desires and to my thinking and my sinful attitudes, I would never come to Christ. Come back to John chapter six here. Again, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Praise God, God saved me. He drew me unto himself, and if you're a Christian here this morning, he drew you too. Praise God for his work, amen? Secondly, I want you to see that Jesus is the satisfaction in life, verses 41 and on. There are those in this passage in our world today that, that only see Jesus as a mere man or even a prophet or just a teacher, but he's so much more. He is the eternal satisfaction to all that believe and trust in him. And the father draws his children to himself. And when this life is over, he promises that he will raise us up again on that day. And Jesus came to show us that this earthly pursuit of life will not endure. It, it, we will, will not get where we want to go from this earth. And it's only through the life-giving death of Jesus Christ that we can truly live. And Jesus comes back to this idea, again, the doctrine of divine election. We can't escape it this morning. Verse, verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? You know, remember, now they, they know him. They've seen him. They probably saw him run around as a kid, and they know his mom and dad, and they think, wait a minute. How does this work? It's because they don't believe. They're not listening to the message. They don't believe. In verse 43, Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so maybe the question that comes to your mind is saying, Jesus isn't saying we don't have free will, is he? I believe in free will. What is Jesus saying? I do not believe that Jesus is saying here that we don't have free will, and let me explain why. And I needed help in this, so I went to a trusted resource. I went to Tim Keller, and I'm going to use an illustration of his, so if you don't like it, you can email him. Don't get mad at me. I want to make this real in our minds this morning. So imagine with me for the next 100 meals, you have two choices, okay? Meal on your right side and your left. Uh, every meal will be provided for you. You don't have to do any cooking. So mom's on Mother's Day, that would be glorious, right? Have to cook again. The next 100 meals, you wouldn't have to cook. On the right side for the meal choice, would be steak or chicken or fish or if you're a vegetarian, whatever that you enjoy, vegetables. A good side dish and then cake for dessert. Every meal on the right. On the left is sliced bloody monkey brains covered with animal poo. And then for dessert, some flies swarming over on top. Which do you choose? Those are your two options. I would think, I would, choose the one on the right every time. Every meal. I would never choose the one on the left. Never. You couldn't pay me enough to eat sliced monkey brains. And someone were to come and ask me about it, I would say, I can't. I can't eat it. And maybe we're getting a little philosophical about this choice thing. I mean, there are different kinds of can't, isn't there? You can't choose it, but it's not because you lack free will. 
It's not that you can't do it. What you mean to say is that you can't want it. You can't want it. It's not that you can't actually eat or choose the dish on the left-hand side. You say, I can never want that. It's, it's opposite to what you think a meal is. You're disgusted by it. It's a, so is it a lack of free will that means you'll never, ever, ever choose that? It's not a lack of free will, it's a lack of desire. Unless you desire to eat the meal on the left. You won't choose the meal on the left. And what I believe Jesus is saying here simply is this. The Bible is essentially saying that this is the condition of every human heart. That the real God, not the God that you imagine, not the God that you think that he is, a God that you think you'll do this and this and this for me. No, the real God the God revealed in history, the God revealed in the Bible, the holy God, the majestic God, this God so threatens your heart. Because when the heart comes near a God like that, immediately the heart recognizes rightly, if I get, if I get a God like this into my life, I will lose control totally. This is an absolute God, a sovereign God, and, and if he comes into my life, then I lose complete control and the heart is right about that. The second thing the heart believes, and every heart believes this, we think that's the end of my joy. When Jesus says, this is only the beginning of joy, of real joy, of lasting joy. That's what Jesus is essentially saying here is that every person's heart is, is kind of like they're, they're bewitched a little bit. Imagine that you believe that someone has put poison in every ounce of food you will eat. It's not true. It has not happened, but you're convinced of it. You believe that there is poison in every ounce of food in front of you. You're fooled. You think you see it, and because of it, you refuse to eat. You will not eat. Therefore, you begin to die because of not eating. You are starving slowly. What hope is there for a person like that? The only hope for a person like that is intervention. Their only hope is for someone to intervene on their behalf to give them food. Someone that takes control. It's not that you can't choose the right thing, it's just that you will never choose the right thing unless someone steps in. Therefore, in this passage this morning, Jesus isn't saying that you don't have free will. He says, you will never have the desire unless I come, unless I draw you, unless I do the work, you will never want it. And what glorious truth this is, remind us again of the sovereign rule of our God. God knew that we would reject him in and of ourselves and he steps in and he draws us to himself. Jesus continues in verse 45. He says, it's written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. And Jesus quotes here Isaiah 54 in verse 45. And what he's saying is that people don't come to God by a powerful sway of a human being. They don't come to God by a powerful human reasoning either. 
You know what? People don't come to God by means of the pastor or preacher. I do not save people. That is not in my job description. I do not accept that. I can't do it. The drawing of people is from God and the people are taught by God. This is why I pray every Sunday as we begin the service that you and that I would be taught by God. He is our teacher. He is our guide. He is the one that's gonna open up our understanding of his word. It is not me. I am just a tool. You could just as easily remove me out and bring someone else in here. It is God that does this work. I am not the means. I'm only, I'm only something God uses. So if you're here and you take the gospel of the good news of salvation to someone else, you are not the one that saves. God is. He only uses you for his honor and for his glory. And he says it very clearly here. He is the bread of life. So what about your life? Is it found in Jesus? Are you saved because of Jesus? Or you'd rather find your satisfaction in things of earth? Well, Jesus talks about that. Verse 49 says, your fathers ate the man in the wilderness. Your fathers found satisfaction in bread that was provided by God in the wilderness. And guess what? He says, they died. It brought food to their stomach, but it did nothing for them for all eternity. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And what he's saying here for us, if you live your life for anything other than God, you will always be disappointed. If you live for something other than God, what happens when you don't get that something? If you live for possessions, for things on earth, what happens when you lose your job? If you live for marriage, what happens if you can't find a spouse or your spouse leaves? If you live for control, what happens when things don't go your way? And the answer in all those areas is that idol crushes you. You're left feeling angry and depressed and bitter because you live for something and not someone. Jesus says your bread, there's a physical here, the things on earth, your stuff, your joy will not satisfy. It will not last. Just like the, 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 those in the wilderness, they ate manna and they still died. You will die, but his bread, his very life will bring you eternal life, will bring you real life because it's from God and not from you. You know, the only thing we bring to Jesus in the equation is our need. Jesus, I need you. This leads into the last point here this morning. Verses 52 through 59, it says Jesus, my point is Jesus is the center of faith. The only way to enjoy Jesus is to accept him in faith. We embrace him as the only means for this life on earth and for the life to come. You know, the next eight verses have caused a lot of issues for many people for hundreds of years, especially to Catholic friends. 
they interpret this passage as the first mention of the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, and I, I flatly disagree. I don't see it. And I wanna share those details with you. I promised you last week, and we're gonna go through it here, but let's read the passage here. Verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. There are four reasons here I want to tell you why I reject the notion that this is the Lord's Supper. First, there is nothing in the immediate context of these verses that indicate to the listeners that, that in fact Jesus is describing the Lord's Supper. There's, there's no mention of this. Jesus doesn't say, oh, by the way, I'm introducing something here. Second, he, he makes no mention of the Lord's Supper. So he's, he's not instituting it. He's not saying do this in this passage. The third thing is the terminology that's mentioned here in John's gospel does not, is not consistent with the rest of the New Testament when we talk about observing the Lord's Supper. What we read and what we see in the rest of of, of Paul's gospel and even the gospels is that it's, it's bread and wine, not flesh and blood. And fourth, if we take these verses, 51 and 53 and 54 and then 56 through 58 to mean the Lord's Supper, that it would also require that the Lord's Supper itself imparts salvation. However, throughout this chapter and throughout all of Jesus's ministry, and through this passage particularly, it is highlighted that faith, faith is the means to receive salvation. And so the point of these images of drinking and eating is to make clear the essence of faith. It is more than believing that there, there is such a thing as water and food. It's more than believing that Jesus provides water and food. It's believing that Jesus is our water and food. Faith is coming to Jesus and drinking the water and eating the food so that then our hearts will find complete satisfaction in him alone. Jesus is the end of our quest for satisfaction. When we are trusting in Jesus, we're satisfied in him. And we won't be drawn away to the alluring options of sin in this world. And so Jesus uses this graphic language to describe the total commitment of his followers of him. You know, there are many biblical authors who use images of eating and drinking in reference to spiritual realities. Jeremiah said, your words are found and I ate them. The psalmist said, as a deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants after you, O God. And Jesus said in Matthew's gospel, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they should be satisfied. Coming back here to verses 55 and 56, Jesus says, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The true food and true drink means that the normal food and drink that we take into our bodies, that they will not give eternal life. That's what Jesus is talking about. Only, only Jesus is the kind of food and drink that give life, that give real life. Verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. 
This kind of eating and drinking means that Jesus is in us and we are in him. This is the way that we have union with Christ so that his life counts for ours. This is why we have eternal life when we feed on Jesus. And he mentions this a few times, the continual, it's feeding on him. His life goes into us and we go into him. There is a union that makes us part of his life and him part of our life. There's no eternal life except union with Jesus Christ. You cannot be a Christian without this union with Jesus Christ. So as we end this morning, I was reminded as I was going through this passage, even the the length of chapter six, there's so many things here. But I was reminded of the testimony of Charles Spurgeon, which I read a number of years ago. And and if you I've mentioned him a few times in the pulpit, maybe a couple times. A few more. You know, he's he's known as the Prince of Preachers. He's one of the of our history of the church, one of the greatest preachers. And he has quite a testimony of God's goodness in saving him. You know, he was raised in a Christian home. He he heard the gospel, I'm sure. He's raised in a a lineage of good, faithful pastors. And he was 15 years old by the time he he really, truly trusted Christ. And and I want to read this morning his testimony as as he wrote it, of the magnificent power of God in drawing his own people to himself. This is what Charles writes. I sometimes think that I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodist, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that didn't matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they could tell me that, I did not care how much they made my headache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed in, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. Now, remind me, he's, he's saying unlearned, okay? Don't jump to a conclusion there. He was obliged to stick to the text and for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. There was I, and thought, a glimpse of hope for me in the text. The preacher began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, now look and don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It just says, look. Well, a man needing to go to college to learn to look, you may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, he said in his broad Essex accent. I think that's like Southern accent. I don't know the Collins here that you know. He says, many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. O poor sinner, look unto me. 
look unto me. And when he had gone to about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with a few present, he must have known I was a stranger. And fixing his eyes upon me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance. However, it was a good blow. It struck right home. He continued, and you always will be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you'll be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. He says, I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else, he said. I do not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed, so it was with me. I had been waiting to do fitty things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. In that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. Yet it was no doubt all wisely ordered. And now I can say, ever since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Have you looked? Have you embraced Jesus Christ? Folks, until you feast upon the bread of Jesus Christ himself, all the other things on earth will leave you hungry. Look into him. And be saved. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that teaches us and guides us and leads us. Father, I pray for those here this morning that they do not know you. Maybe they've been playing the Christian game for some time. They've attended church. They've attended Sunday school. Their kids are in Awana. Yet they've never come to you. And humility. Recognizing their need for a savior. They've never repented. They never asked for forgiveness for their sins, knowing that you can save them. God, I ask that you would help them this morning to understand their need for a Savior. I pray that today will be the day of salvation for them. Father, I pray that you would use your text this week in our lives, that you would teach us. Even though there's difficult things, God, you can teach us But Father, even in the midst of it, help us to remember that we don't have the privilege of knowing everything that you know. 
Your ways are higher than our ways. We are finite and you are infinite. Help us to rest in that. Help us to serve you faithfully this week. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.